Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Sharon Lever, your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Today, we're joined by Vice President and Principal Analyst Brian Hopkins to discuss how ecosystems, the tech provider landscape, and technology in general will evolve after COVID-19. Welcome, Brian. Thank you for the invite. So, Brian, I think it's probably helpful to frame this conversation um, in three time horizons. You sort of organize the research this way anyway. So let's talk about the trends and impact on tech in the short term, medium term, and long term, if you don't mind. So let's ground ourselves in the short term. What has been the short term impact of COVID on technology and tech debt specifically? Really, there's kind of an obvious answer and then there's a a non-obvious piece. The obvious answer is, is that we all, all as companies had to shift to uh, remote work and companies who had ignored their employee experience, technology, or mid-office or some of their back office processes found that challenging. Um, and that, but what it has really done is it's revived the idea of digital transformation. Uh, we took a survey immediately before the pandemic. Luckily enough, we didn't know. It was in January. It was our biggest survey, Journeys and Priorities. And um, we asked about business priorities in that survey. And digital transformation was like middle of the road. Right. And frankly, uh, we had been talking about digital for a long time. And so from a Forrester perspective, we were seeing that term kind of being retired. Right. Not a lot of companies thought it had legs and it had been largely focused on growth, largely focused on customer engagement channels. And a lot of companies have been investing in that. Well, we hit the pandemic and we took a survey in May to just to kind of see where priorities were. And digital transformation jumped from middle of the pack up to near the top, like it jumped up four points. Right below digital transformation, of course, cost reduction also jumped up two position points in the priorities. So we think that story, cost reduction and digital transformation together really tell kind of a different thing, which is it's no longer about just going and pursuing customers and growing through digital. What it really became about, obviously, in the pandemic was how do I operate an efficient business, take cost out and need to do digital transformation on an end to end basis? Right. So we're talking back office, mid office and front office all connected together. That's the only way a lot of companies saw that they were going to try to you know, adapt in the, in the pandemic. Um, interestingly, now that's kind of the obvious piece. The unobvious piece is when we go talk to CIOs about this, what we see, the ones that we've talked to is a lot of CIOs feel like they stepped up and answered the call. So I've had a number of CIOs tell me things like, you know, if you told us in January that we had to get all of our employees from in offices to working in home in like a month and a half, people would have thought we're crazy. And you know what? We did it and we're more productive than ever. I hear that a lot. So the piece that's not obvious is I think that CIOs and tech leaders who have helped their companies pull this impossible thing off have really been vindicated. And now companies are looking at them and going, well, if you can do that, what else can you do? Right? So that piece, Brian, though, about budget is interesting because, um, so there may be more confidence that they could pull it off. There's more demand to reignite digital efforts, um, but there's not more money, that's for sure, given the economic climate at the moment. So clearly, best case scenario, you decrease technical debt, you free up funds to then push into digital efforts, but that that takes some time, doesn't it? I mean, how are folks uh, addressing that or coming up with the money to even get rolling on digital right now? Is it through technical debt or are they, um, I don't know, taking some other route to, to get it going? Well, I mean, I think that when I talk to firms, there's still, 
I mean, by this time, right? So we're talking a few months ago, there was still an awful lot of low hanging fruit to be to be picked. So one of the things that we saw hit a big spike in in responding to the pandemic was things like RPA, because you don't need to retire debt to make RPA work, right? If you talk to Craig LeClaire, one of my analyst colleagues, he tells a real interesting story about an airline that we, we actually put in some research that through in a, in a seven-day period, through RPA, was able to um, take out the back office effort of 28 humans to process cancellations because there was massive amounts of cancellations and these company, this company realized that they had ignored that and it was a largely human process and, and they could not sh- scale up to the massive number of cancellations they had. So they brought in an RPA exercise and in seven days we're able to wire a lot of that and get around that technical debt so i think there's been a lot of creative uh, efforts to date but i think going forward you're absolutely right companies are recognizing that um, business and we've written this in research that business resiliency going forward is going to be a new competitive advantage some of us think it might even be something investors look at when they when they value a stock um, so how do you become resilient with fragile mid and back office processes so what they're doing is they're taking the band-aids they slapped on their back office and they're recognizing again back to the CIOs. If you could do this with some band-aids and bubblegum, right? What could you do if we gave you some money and actually pressed on this digital mid and back office set of processes that we've been ignoring? So I think to some extent, uh, companies were scrambling, they were going to investors, they were going back to their boards, they were asking for the bare amount of money to keep their business running with 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 a shoestring and some bubblegum and and, and 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 duct tape. Then they're saying, well, if I can do this, what can I do? And it's just the things that they're learning are starting to become uh, kind of like some people say that RPA bots are addictive. They also have some of their, they get too addictive, but there's a lot of places that things, uh, p- places people can go with process automation and things like that. Um, going forward, it's going to be really interesting about the retiring technical debt that we can get into. But that's what I think in the short term, how people handle it. Is there, you know, you just use the the RPA example. Are there other technologies like cloud where you saw sort of people gravitating towards during this sort of short term period to either, you know, accelerate some efforts or what have you? Hugely, hugely. We saw a big, when we look at technical priorities, things that did not uh, uh, get put off, the number one actually increase in technology spend was cloud, followed by security, followed by networking, right? So cloud security and networking, all those things got a lot more money because people realized that, A, they needed to be able to uh, accommodate customer changes really quickly and that they saw the cloud as the way to do that. Networking, they need to be able to connect to their employees and their customers, right? And security, the changing a way that customers were interacting with them and the changing nature of where their employees worked uh, created a lot of security vulnerabilities. So they really linked into those technologies. Those also seem to be sort of foundation technologies, right? Um, maybe for lack of a better term, meaning it's get your house in order, set yourself up to be able to adapt and change and do different things in the future, which is, you know, quite frankly, kind of heartwarming, you know, <laughs> the folks aren't jumping to whatever the next snazzy thing is that they can slap on the exterior of, of the, all of their technical debt, but really looking at the platform and the underlying foundation and getting that ready for whatever comes tomorrow and next year and next, next decade. Yeah, yeah, that's an astute observation, Sharon. Um, we really think that, and, and then it gets into the kind of the mid and the long-term conversation that we wrote about in the report. 
Um, from a midterm perspective, what we think is going to happen, and again, uh, some of my colleagues, uh, Bobby Cameron and Andy Bartels, did this analysis where they really looked at three three classes of companies. We had uh, survival mode companies, a lot of companies that just were hit hard by the pandemic and uh, really just doing whatever they could to, to survive. Um, on the other end, we had growth mode companies, which were companies that uh, found themselves uh, serendipitously in a position for having increased demand for their products and services because of the shift. And then the folks in the middle were, uh, there have been several names, I think adaptive mode is what we settled on. Those are those companies that uh, are, are able to, in thinking about how to do some pivots and shift from physical to digital or, or, or take advantage of some of the shifts in demand and customer behaviors. Um, so we think that over the next three years, the companies that um, are in that either growth mode or a class of the adaptive mode that have strong balance sheets and have the vision to make these foundational investments right, are going to start to do things like retire technical debt. So we'll talk about some of the technologies like cloud native uh, Kubernetes in a minute, but um, they're going to start to retire technical debt and they're going to really lean into making those foundational investments. Uh, and we've done a fair bit of research that shows that companies, as you make those foundational investments, get an exponential accelerator as, as those investments benefit from next generation networks, new silicon and chips, those things, costs go down, power goes up. That foundational investment then sets companies up for that future innovation uh, and that future disruptive era we think is coming. Well, let's talk about that midterm um, switch from the, the immediate of, of what folks were doing in, in kind of response mode, but the medium term trends. I mean, if it's true that, that, companies are investing in cloud and security and networking, some of those foundational components. What does that mean for the next, I don't know, year or two, maybe even three years out in terms of what they'll be focusing on and if that's actually going to produce some sort of jolt or, or jump in productivity from technology overall? Yeah, it's real interesting. We've seen, um, if you look at, uh, we do an analysis of the total productivity versus IT spend. And again, my colleague, Andy, our e economist uh, in our CIO team does that. And when we look at that, what you see is a downward trend. In other words, it's taken more money to get the same productivity gains. And so the trend of productivity versus uh, spend is kind of trend down, trended down since about 2000, but with, with ups and downs and ups and downs. So I think what you're indicating here is what we're going to see is a big productivity bump because firms were forced to make those digital investments that they had kind of been putting off in pursuit of growth strategies for a while. So I think you're absolutely right. Um, in terms of the next one to three years, there's a bunch of trends that are that are kind of all mixing together right now. Um, I think one of the things that's on the CIO's minds when we talk to and their businesses' minds is how what does the future look like and how are we going to operate in that future? So uh, the big thing is like the you know the tensions with with uh, China right now between the U.S. and China, um, or another big trend we see is the increasing willingness of values-oriented customers to vote with their wallet and only do business with companies that that exhibit their their values, whether it's uh, um, climate change, whether it's uh, you know, human social issues, right? So these things are causing companies to who had at it once um, thought about operating very centrally and just kind of giving every every country and every segment a similar experience. Now they're thinking about how do we really operate what, what we're starting to call hyper-locally, 
which means increasingly locally and increasingly smaller micro segments and understanding customers, both to mitigate risk. What happens if the Chinese firewall between the U.S. and China goes up more or to serve customers with different needs like uh, U.S. customers prefer uh, convenience? Um, um, European customers are about price and about values. So this increasing hyperlocal operations is causing companies to think about how they invest in cloud, how they invest in technology, and how they are able to get some of the efficiencies of centralized technology operations while getting some of the benefits of very hyper-local business operations. And that's that's a big thing on, on clients' minds right now when we talk to them. So what does that translate into in terms of technology? Um, you know, what new technologies will folks be investing in to make that happen? It sounds like it's it's technologies that empower more of that democratization of innovation and creativity across the organization to be able to do more with maybe even less technical expertise. So things like low code, et cetera. Yeah, there's a bunch of things going on that really accelerate that. If you read our report that we just published, the top technology trends and emerging technologies to watch, it was my privilege to work with a lot of our top analysts on a bunch of trends. And that's kind of what we saw when we when we looked at those. So a couple of things, right? So working with Jeffrey Hammond um, and the application development team, what we're there, the trend that they developed was is that software democratization is accelerating again. And they put the again on the end because they see it accelerates and slows down, accelerates and slows down. And as waves of technology come around, it tends to accelerate them again. So what we began to see is, again, things like low code applications, um, uh, continuous delivery and integration tools, uh, um, things that are in the cloud, cloud native technologies even, are combining with things like intelligent automation. So, which is RPA or business process management plus pragmatic AI like text analytics. These things are all combining, if you have the right foundation built back to that foundation, to enable greater democratization of, of the development of software uh, for, for systems of engagement type of applications. So that's certainly happening, but like you pointed out, all of those great um, agile tools require differentiating capabilities and something uh, we've worked on called the value-aligned tech technology stack, right? So those agile tools need to be built on a set of differentiating capabilities. Those differentiating capabilities are increasingly requiring things like cloud-native uh, computing, which in includes things like uh, Kubernetes and service meshes like Istio and, and some other... Uh, other open source tools that enable firms to build a set of uh, microservice-based applications that serve up to those democratized developers the services and capabilities they need to innovate in very hyper-local and different areas of the world. So you get with some of that middleware technology, the ability to operate very centrally uh, while still deploy specialized processes and applications to serve customers in their context hyper-locally. So it's really, like you pointed out, the middleware, the differentiating middleware sitting on top of that agile layer that's really going to empower companies that invest now to be ready in the future. So as you're talking through that, it, it makes me want to think about a company that, you know, does completely to cloud native, does have all these more um these tools that allowed more creativity and adaptivity. In your mind, do you think that we ultimately do get to a state where 
most companies have very minimal technical debt. Like, does technical debt eventually go away or not become a conversation anymore? Or is it just a matter of it's not the majority of your budget anymore, but it's always going to be sitting there and it's always going to be the thing, the enemy that you're fighting to be able to invest in new innovation? That's a great question, Sharon. It's one that we debated internally. I, there's, <laughs> I'm not sure I know the answer. There's really two sides to the coin. Um, on one side, you could point to the fact that we still have a lot of our business running on mainframes and running on legacy code. And has that really changed over the last 30 years? Or have companies just recognized that that's something they have to live with? And maybe they can wrap those things in services and get away from having to get off of that technology. And frankly, you've got IBM is doing amazing things in System Z. So the mainframe may not be the beast that we once thought it was. Um, so on one hand, it's like, well, you know, technical debt is just something we're going to live with forever. Um, and on the other hand, there's this idea that we're talking about in terms of the ex acceleration of digital that may make any company not willing to get off of all the money that it's spending and that what Andy calls moose spending. Um, very hard to compete. And I don't think anybody knows the answer. I'd kid, kid you if I, I thought that was true, but there's really two arguments and they're equally weighted. What do you think, Sharon? <laughs> I don't know. I feel like that is the way we will fund innovation is to constantly reduce technical debt. So tracking that and being able to quantify it um, and see that trend go down in my eyes, that just, you know, if a tech leader can pull that off, that just rises them in the ranks and gives them a lot more credibility to invest in cool new things. Yeah, well, certainly yeah, that's what we advise our clients. And if I were a CIO, I'd, I'd, I'd have that high on my agenda list. Um, let's talk about Kubernetes for a sec um, and, and cloud native, because I think that that's a really interesting set of technologies that uh, I've been talking with our cloud folks about for a while. And it's it's having a couple of impacts. First off, it's, it's giving clients the ability to retire technical debt in ways that they never had before, right? And so uh, that was the conclusion that we came to, me and Dave Bartoletti, when we wrote our trend around cloud native of accelerate software innovation anywhere or everywhere, I think is the word we used. Uh, and what we're essentially saying is, is that what cloud native is doing, things like Kubernetes and uh, service mesh technologies and, and uh, other, other things, uh, is they're giving companies the ability to operate in cloud-like ways with technology in places other than the public cloud. And so the issue has always been when you talk to your average uh, enterprise today and you ask them what their cloud strategy is, it's all in on Azure, all in on AWS or Azure and AWS or Google, or there's some mix of the public cloud providers. And there's some stuff that they recognize has to be on their private cloud or in their data center and they're never gonna get it off. And so they're, they're, they're struggling with this. Well, if I go all in on Azure, I'm still going to have this mess of stuff that I'm never going to get to Azure and I got to make it work. And how am I going to do all this stuff? And how am I going to migrate all my applications over into Azure? Because they didn't really have any other choice for, um, for agility and for software innovation. So what we're seeing with things like Kubernetes is this, Kubernetes, you can think of it is as a VMs on top of the OS. So the operating system has to be Linux. And then you can run a containerized package of code running on Linux using and managing those packages of code using a management tool called Kubernetes. Um, it's, it's, it's emerging. It, it, it can be a little bit difficult to learn. But once you kind of master how that Kubernetes works, it gives you the ability to operate uh, stand up, stand down, scale out 
uh, your enterprise applications, but anywhere you can de deploy Linux, you can deploy Kubernetes and you can run a container of code there. So you can move data or code from your data center to, your, to a cloud, from one cloud on one Kubernetes service, assuming you design the service correctly, running on another cloud in their Kubernetes service. So you have this code portability thing. And um, with if you properly design your applications using a service mesh architecture, you have a lot of scalability too. Again, that's, that's emerging stuff. There's not a whole lot of people that know how to do that. But there's a lot of vendors helping clients learn how to do that right now, which means that if you're able to master that differentiating layer foundational investment now, you'll be able to do things that you could only do in the public cloud very shortly. So that really enables you to do a lot of software innovation in places that you never had before. So this idea of you have to be in one of three hyperscale public cloud vendors to have the speed and innovation and agility you want, that's going to diminish over time because of that technology. Is that helping firms also, going back to your original point about business resiliency and that being sort of something that, you know, even the street will be looking at, like, does that play here? Does that help a firm be more resilient in some way, shape or form or any of these technologies kind of feeding back into that original point of like, you know, this is key, critical, crucial for businesses to to kind of get right or invest in to become more resilient? I think it can. And I think firms are eyeing that, you know, but you have to design your architecture right. You have to design an architecture for for failover, for, for the nines availability you need, for the resiliency you need. And I think a lot of CIOs that we talk to, the more leading ones are already thinking about that right now, right? How do you build resiliency in through? But the, the issue then becomes is, you can't just take your monolithic application, drop it in a container, put it, put it, run it on Kubernetes somewhere and expect that resiliency. You have to really rethink your application and, and your tools and build them into a set of services that have that resiliency embedded in. So the thing that we're seeing with, with Kubernetes today and some of the things that vendors are doing, a container happens to be a pretty great package to lift and shift your, uh, your code from your data center somewhere and mostly what we see is data center bare metal to data center in a container on kubernetes in preparation for taking that code and moving it over into the cloud but some firms are also going into the cloud as well and vendors are, are supporting that for instance red hat uh, um, has about to release a capability in its OpenShift product which is a uh, a licensed commercialized version of kubernetes that allows you to run vms so if you have a virtual virtual machine type configuration in your data center and you can't, it doesn't make sense to containerize that. You can actually just move the VM over and run the VMs in the containers on top of OpenShift wherever you have Linux deployed. So it's giving firms a lot of capabilities um, so that you can think about once your container, your, your software is containerized, then how to create a future version of it that's broken into pieces wired together by microservices. And it's when you start to think about that future state architecture is when you can really think about how you build in that resiliency. So it takes a couple of steps and that should be part of all CIOs and, and IT leaders thinking is how do I get to that resilient architecture and what's the runway to get there and how long does it take me? So let's go a little longer term, right? So after this sort of wave of tech change disruption caused by the pandemic, are you predicting the pace of change slows down, pulls back, or are we just sort of in hyperdrive? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, so we've we've made a couple of calls on that. Um, 
I think the first call that I've made, I've made, and it's been in a couple of bits of my research, and I'm talking about it in a couple of speeches, is the fact that I think the 2020s is going to be very different from the 2010s, right? The 2010s, if you take looking back, was all about you know customer obsessed companies finding new new business models, new customer value, new services, and exploiting things like mobile and then cloud and some social and big data to deliver those new business models and steal company steal customers from companies that you know couldn't couldn't make that shift. So it's about from a technology perspective, a lot about cloud. So when we think about what that meant is that when you look at uh, cloud, it, it's 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 a centralized technology. Um, even though there's, it's virtualized and there's data centers all over the world, it's about putting all your technology in one virtual place. Um, so we saw a massive growth in in in, in companies, um, some the fangs, the digital companies, right? A lot of centralization of wealth and power. Um, in the 2020s, what we think is that trend is going to reverse. We've already talked about hyperlocalization. Um, but the fact is, is that things that some of these technologies like Kubernetes, uh, uh, cloud native, demo, um, accelerated low code, uh, robotic process automation, all supplemented by AI, are going to enable companies to operate in different regions of the world. And, and they're going to operate in different parts of the world to create risk mitigation and resiliency strategies. And, and this is going to give an opportunity for mid-sized businesses to, who make the investments now to be ready for 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 some large scale growth in in the future. So we're going to see a reversal of we think large rich digital companies getting larger and richer, and we're going to see more of a distribution of the size and profitability of companies over the next ten years. That that that's going to reverse. The other thing we see when we take a look at uh, some of the technologies that are emerging. I think the most interesting technologies today are, that are emerging are back down at the silicon le level, right? So a lot of things are going on with like edge computing. So we didn't even talk about that trend. Um, but what edge computing is doing is, is edge computing is, is pushing a lot of processing out, out of the data center, out of the cloud. And it's pushing it out into places very close to where business happens. And it kind of goes hand in hand with that hyperlocal thing, right? Um, and things like Kubernetes and cloud native are actually supporting deploying packages of code out into edge environments, whether it's a colo facility, a content delivery networks point of presence, uh, a telco, a smart home hub, light bulb, a server in your in your in your industrial facility, wherever that is, right? So we see a lot of that in the edge happening, and to make that happen, there's a lot of advancements happening at the networking level. And a lot of advancements happening in silicon. So we see a lot of vendors are uh, rethinking everything has to be x86. And they're looking at other architectures, either accelerated computer vision and AI chips, GPUs, FPGAs, and even some a bunch of new research happening uh, down at that silicon level. And so and a lot of these, these chips will be deployed not into big data centers, but they will be deployed out to all these edge, edge devices for things like uh, um, inference, computer vision, artificial intelligence out at the edge. So that's kind of a real interesting trend. But what it also means is that companies who make that foundational investment now are going to be able to benefit from some of these continued exponential changes as a software-defined networking gets more advanced, um, 5G rolls out. Some of these new new kinds of silicon and some of the new architectures that these 
chips are being built on. Uh, Intel is working on a really interesting one API strategy. And one API will allow you with, with one API down at the chip level to communicate with a bunch of different kinds of chips and kind of run run software workloads instead of just all going to the CPU and the CPU kind of offloading out to the GPU or FPGA chip, right? You'd have one API going to all the chips so that you can, through the software, choose which processor you want to do which piece of your, your workload. And that's going to accelerate a lot of these edge applications. So what this all means, kind of stepping back up now to the 10,000-foot level, is that we're going to have I think in the five to 10 year time frame, that gives quantum computing some time to percolate as well. That's a whole nother conversation, but there's some applications in the five to 10 year time frame that I think are going to start to cause a, a new generations of software to create disruptive capabilities like we saw in the 2010s, except we can't really imagine what those software platforms are going to be because the underlying silicon and networking is still the thing where all the innovation is happening. So there's this there's this idea in the 2025 to 2030 range that there's going to be kind of a new renaissance of disruption from some new software that we can't really even imagine right now. And so the visionary companies need to make the investments today to be ready for that future. That's what we wrote in the research. Brian, I don't know if it's just the, the architect in you coming out here, but this does seem like a pretty distinct difference. If we think about companies that were the true disruptors in the 2010s. To your point, yes, they used cloud, et cetera. They also were focused on truly custom, creative development, right? App dev, um, unique creative experiences, et cetera. It sounds like you're saying, even if we start to think about skill sets that'll be in demand, it's less about development skill sets, um, even maybe designers, things of that nature, and more focused on core architecture, um, to your point, down at the silicon level and rethinking how your whole computing infrastructure is deployed and, and federated in a whole different level. Is that a, am I taking that too far? No, no, not at all. You're right on it. And yeah, it's the architect in me that comes out. But yes, no, I think there, it's real interesting. We're seeing a split, right? It was back in the 2010s, all development kind of converged on the middle and you had that uh, kind of cloud native, agile software developer building systems of engagement type of applications um, to drive those disruptive uh, new capabilities delivered um, via mobile applications, right? Kind of a cliche, but that's what we saw. Um, what we think has happening today is that is that the most interesting development is split, is, is moving away from the middle to the two ends. So on one end, that democratization, those, that, those, those business developers are using things like low-code tools. And they're also beginning to use things like function as a service deployed to a, uh, a, a colo provider's edge fabric or to a content delivery network's point of presence to really accelerate the amount of code they can develop and not have to worry about even all the back-end cloud stuff. So we see kind of at the very tip of that democratized development core, an explosion of innovation as more and more uh, people without uh, hardcore computer science skills can build very sophisticated global scale applications. On the other hand, we see a lot of development shifting back down to the silicon and the networks, right? 
So because it's all becoming software-driven, software-defined networking was uh, kind of the next big thing for a while. And so you're seeing a bunch of network engineers who are used to hard configuring things going, well, I got to learn how to write code, right? What is this thing, right? But that's been happening for a while. So there's more and more of those folks. I think the next thing that's going to happen is software-defined engineering down at the chip level, right? Because if you have if you have things like Gen Z Consortium um, is working on, it's an industry consortium by HP, and there's a bunch of chip vendors in there. They're creating a memory bus architecture if they're successful that will be able to address a yottabyte of memory. Now, there's no such thing as a yottabyte of continuous memory today. There might be in the future with things like quantum storage, but again, different conversation. Um, but having the, the chip architecture to address a memory space that large combined with things like one API from Intel so you can write you know, chip level assembly language code to use different processors like uh, neural processors, uh, CPUs, GPUs, whatever processors you need for these very discrete workloads at the edge. Um, all that's going to require a lot of software engineering, but that software engineering is not going to be done by your cloud Java developer. It's going to be done by your network guy, your 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 silicon engineer. These are very new software skills down very, very close to the hardware. And you're absolutely right, Sharon. Companies that, that understand those and are building that cadre of expertise are going to be a lot better off because they're going to be able to build those, that differentiating middleware that will accelerate the agility of their innovation. What is the primary piece of advice that you're giving IT leaders today who are just working to prepare? Maybe they don't see all these things coming. Maybe they maybe they do have that kind of looking around the corner vision. But what should they be doing now, working on now? I mean, obviously, you've hinted at this throughout the whole conversation to prepare for all of these changes to come. So most of our clients are kind of right in the middle. You know, they're not the extreme growth mode. They're not the extreme survival mode, but they're kind of right in that somewhere between. The, I mean, it, you know, we say there's three, three classes, but there's a whole scale, right? So most of our clients are kind of in the middle. And so they're, 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 most of our clients have successfully or mostly successfully made the transition to work from home. They've, if they can, pivoted as much as possible to digital sales models to, to keep their revenue going. And now they're you know, thinking about what's next. They're looking at the election in the U.S. If they're a U.S.-based company, they're looking at global tensions and they're, they're trying to figure out, like, how do we mitigate? How do we create a resilient processes? How do we invest in that digital going forward? And so um, the big piece of advice I give clients is, is you have to really understand the trends and understand how technology is enabling those trends, uh, understanding at the end of the day, even though the 2020s will be different than the 2010s in terms of the disruptive forces that are causing changes, the customer-obsessed operating model and the customer obsession that we talk about is still going to be kind of the driving trend for the next 10 years. You're going to have to understand how your customers, what they're demanding and, and how they change. Um, and so we really think there's kind of three bits that you need to invest in to be ready for that future, um, to take on that, what I call customer obsessed 2.0, right? Uh, it's not just about pouring everything into the cloud and, and there's not a lot of low hanging fruit. You got to be ready for the, um, ready for the 2020s where there's going to be a lot more 
uncertainty, things like climate change are going to come home to roost. A lot of systemic risks that were that will cause unpredictability, right? And those three things really are adaptive, right? We already talked about that. I wrote about it last year. I wrote about it before the pandemic. So I'm going to pat myself on the head and say, hey, even though you didn't know the pandemic, you know, uncertainty and preparing and being able to proactively change and be the kind of business built for change, right? That's the thing about adaptive. Become the kind of business that's built to periodically rethink your core concepts. The other side of that is resiliency. Become the kind of business that even if you haven't correctly prepared, you can respond with grace and with agility to things that you can't foresee. So adaptive, resilient. And the last piece that Sharon touched on is creative, right? The creative is about digital differentiation in the face of everyone can now use the same software to solve the same business company customer problems very quickly. It creates a lot of digital sameness. And the only way that you overcome that sameness is through innovations. And the only way to have innovations that are truly differentiating is to look at your skill set and be sure you're hiring people with that emotional, empathetic, human creative side. They're the ones who are going to figure out how to deliver those next generation of software innovations. So I say adaptive, creative, and resilient are three strategies that enable you to get to that next level of customer obsession. That's what I tell clients. Excellent. Thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks for letting me go on. This is really fun. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Brian. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.